young and fearless Americans, children of the space age, armed with cameras, microphones, and curiosity. Alan Yates, Faye Daniels, and their two cameramen and inseparable friends, Jack Anders and Martin Amato. Four youngsters who never came back. Are they still alive? And if so, where are they? These are the questions that the rescue team sponsored by New York University and the Pan American Broadcasting System hope to be able to answer. folks um that's right this week we're revisiting something i really can't believe i didn't give enough attention to the first time around um i mean possibly it, it is one of my favorites uh that's right cannibal holocaust and it's kind of hard to put those words into the same sentence favorite cannibal holocaust it just doesn't sound right but i mean truly this this film is just as raunchy and as friggin' gross as you can get, um, and at the t- same time, it is actually terrifying because it's 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 real. I mean, this this could happen. You know, it's it's definitely freaky stuff. So, um, just kind of a quick summary, and basically everything we'll be going over within this podcast. So, I mean, of course, we don't already know um, that uh, the Italian that this is an Italian cannibal horror movie um, and uh, essentially it was directed by Ruggiero Diodato and written by uh, uh, Giantranco uh, Clerici and um, <clears throat> the works were influenced by that of um, I guess the Mondu director uh, Galtero uh, Giacopetti and inspired by the Italian um Basically, the yeah, Italian media reporting of the Red Brigade terrorism at the time. I mean, I don't know much about this, but uh, essentially, to Diodato, um, the coverage, you know, it included a lot of news reports, and Diodato believed that these had to be staged. They just, they didn't seem right. We'll get into that, but uh, it's kind of creepy, and, you know, just that, you know, that the news could do that. And essentially, you know, the film touches on that, and we'll talk a little bit about that during the plot. Um, and, um, you know, this is the first found footage documentary. I mean, it's a really unique story. It kind of two stories in one with um, with a unique message that you can, you can really relate to. And 
I mean, I think it's kind of one of those timeless messages. So, um, I mean, this is one of those films, if you have not seen it, there is so much graphic violence that you may need to bring a vomit bag. You know, this isn't the type of movie you can definitely have, like, popcorn pop with, um, always in. It's kind of gross. Um, and, uh, you know, I've watched it a, a couple times now, and it it's still, like, you know, it still creeps me out. And uh, it, it, if you haven't, you got to see it. So um, I don't know if my mic's picking it up, but we're kind of going through a torrential rainstorm here. So uh, kind of a fun fun time to record. <clears throat> um, but anyways, so uh, it's, it's, there is, like I was saying, there's so much violence in this film, though, that it, it stirred up a lot of controversy. Controversy controversy. Sorry, tongue tied. Um, Essentially, after the premiere, you know, uh, this was seized by the local magistrate. Diodato was arrested. We'll get into it, but, you know, essentially he had to fly everybody back from their hiding and and bring them to court. And uh, to this day, I mean, this film's banned still in certain countries. It's edited quite a bit in some so that it is allowed. Um, And, uh, I mean, Banned in Italy, Australia. Uh, this all has to do with the violence, graphic brutality, the sexual assault, and the real uh, depictions of uh, violence against animals. Which we'll get into that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not condoning it, but what Diodato had to do in the time, it makes sense, I guess. Um, and uh, of course, we'll wrap up looking at what the critics had to say. So, um, plot-wise, I mean, in 19, this film set in 1979, um, and an American film crew disappears in the Amazon rainforest while filming a documentary about the indigenous cannibal tribes. Uh, the team consists of our director, Alan Yates, Faye Daniels, his girlfriend, she's our script girl, uh, the two cameramen, Jack Anders, and Mark Tommaso. And uh, Harold Monroe, our anthropologist um, from New York City, basically, he leads the rescue team in hope of finding these missing filmmakers. Um, in anticipation of his arrival, the military conducts a raid on the local Ikumo tribe and takes a hold of a young male hostage in order to help negotiate with the natives. So Monroe essentially um, flies in via float plane, because we're in the middle of nowhere, um, to his guides, uh, Chaco and his assistant Miguel. So, after several days of trekking through the jungle, the group encounters the Yukomo tribe, and they arrange the release of their hostage in exchange for being taken to the village. So, once there, the group is initially greeted um, with a lot of hostility, and basically they kind of learn that there's an unrest from the filmmakers among the people. And they, I mean, they don't speak English. <laughs> uh, they don't speak, you know, um, we're in uh, Colombia, so there's no Spanish, there's not nothing. You know, so basically, they're kind of screwed, you know, and they're just the Akuma was just sort of like, ah, ah, trying to explain, and you can tell there's definitely something going on. So, um, essentially, Monroe and his guides head deeper into the rainforest um, and uh, essentially follow the riverbank um, to where they uh, find a smaller group of the Yanomomo um, just when they're about to basically, you know, or they uh, basically follow and they find a, small, a smaller group of the Yanomomo tribe and they save it from death from the uh, Shamatari warriors. So uh, these two are like, out of the uh, tribes, they're definitely like the two cannibal warring ones, the tree people and the swamp people. So of course, you know, they save these guys from death, so the Anamomo uh, invite Monroe and his team back to the village in gratitude, and they treat them with superstition. So to gain their trust, Monroe um, essentially 
you know, there's a whole kind of scene with this watch exchange, and then he decides that he's just going to bathe naked and see, you know, strip naked of everything and just show the people that he's human too, I guess, in a way, if that makes sense. Um, but, you know, the Yanomomo women emerge, they, you know, take him, and essentially they, there's kind of this playful, giddy scene within the water, and, um, you know, they take him back to this shrine where he basically discovers the rotting remains of the filmmakers. So, angered, he uh, confronts the MMO tribe uh, in the village during which time he plays his tape recorder. So he had an recorded earlier one of the uh, Yamamomo priests essentially conducting some sort of ritual. And, um, you know, this is magic to them. So they come out. Um, and this is basically what he's able to trade to um, obtain the filmmaker's canisters. So, I mean, there's this is probably one of my favorite parts in the film. This whole kind of, like, investigation as they go along. It's um, sort of as I was saying there. So um, this is definitely one of my favorite parts um, through the film as they're investigating. I mean, they're coming, you know, and they basically find little hints that he's on the right track. You know, from finding their base camp. There's some weird scenes in between, not going to lie. Um, but it's, it's definitely unique. Um, and uh, just as they, you know, you don't know what's happening so or what happened to them. You just know something. And it's, it's pretty unique trying to figure out how how you can gain trust with someone without actually using, you know, language. It's uh, definitely a really neat hidden, hidden meaning there. But anyways, so back to the plot. So, um, you know, we go back to New York and the executives from the Pan American Broadcasting System, they invite Monroe back and they want him to broadcast a documentary made from the recovered film. But uh, essentially Monroe insists on viewing the raw footage before making a decision. So uh, the executives first introduce him to Alan's works um, from a previous documentary, uh, The Last Road to Hell. Uh, and during this, they you know explain that some of these films were basically just dramatic scenes. He paid people. And uh, Monroe then begins to re- review the uh, recovered footage where we follow the group's trek from the jungle. Uh, and it's just basically, you know, them walking for days. And essentially, Felipe, their guide's bitten by a venomous snake and the group attempts to amputate it to sh- save his life. Um, but of course, he's dead, dies, left behind. So as they move on, the, uh, the, the group of them locate the Akumo tribe, and Jack decides the best idea is to shoot one of them so they're slower, and then he can follow them to the village. Uh, once they arrive, the, tr- the crew then force the tribe into a hut and burn it down in order to stage a massacre for their film. Um, Monroe then criticizes the stage... Uh, scenes and um, of course the poor treatment of the natives that if his concerns are completely ignored by Pan-American broadcasting they just don't really care at this point it's not that bad so of course he finishes viewing the footage and um, expresses his disgust and essentially the station executives are like no no we have to go ahead with it and uh, to convince them otherwise he decides we just have to show you you have to see the rest of it unedited and uh, which he's the only one who's seen he, who has seen it Essentially, the final two reels are uh, are shown, and uh, we find that the team located a Yamamoto girl, and uh, essentially she's gang raped. While Faye tries to intervene, and um, afterwards they encounter the same girl imperiled on a wooden pole by the riverbank, where they claim that the natives probably killed her due to the loss of her virginity. Um, shortly, and it's it's I mean it's it's one of those scenes you don't forget, and um, not the raping the the post. It's something else. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, uh, shortly after they're attacked by the MMO tribe 
in revenge for this girl's death. Um, and, I mean, they didn't really even get into dealing with any of the other tribes, and it's pretty graphic. So we hit, start off with Jack getting hit by a spear, um, Alan shoots the whole scene as the team comes and basically mutilates his corpse. The three surviving team members try to escape, face captured, and then we watch her issue. Um, Alan, of course, initially insists they try to rescue her, but basically, you know, immediately decides not to, or I should say, ultimately decides not to. And when Mark continues watching her death, um, you know, essentially he is then pursued. Well, the two of them are then pursued. The camera's dropped, and our last bit is being shown of Alan's bloody face. So, um, disturbed, of course, by what they've seen, you know, you see the one executive walk off. The other one orders that the footage is disturbed, and Monroe leaves and ponders, you know, who the real cannibals are. So, yeah, that's it. That is all, folks. I mean, it is some dark, dark film. It's, um, you know, we have Robert Kerman playing uh, Professor Harold Monroe. Um, yes, that's right. The porn star. <laughs> um, Lucio uh, Gerard. Sorry, my Italian's not very good. Luca um, Barret Barici, uh, that's Mark Tommaso. Gabriel York is Alan Yates. Francesca um, Chiardi is Faye Daniels. Perry uh, Perkinin is Jack Andrews. Salvatore Basil is uh, Chaco uh, Lasujos. Ricardo um, Fuentes, uh, Lieutenant Yoka. And uh, a few different others, of course, our TV interviewer, you know, the TV executives and so on. So development began in 79 and uh, was con- contracted by um, essentially uh, to, uh, essentially it was contracted by the Germans. Um, no other nice way to put it. Um, but they wanted uh, Ruggiero to make something similar to Cannibal World, which he uh, he had directed previously. Now, uh, he accepted, but... Um, and found his producer right away, uh, Francesco uh, Poligigi, and flew to Colombia basically to start scouting. And um, he picked uh, Lichia, Colombia, um, in, that was chosen after he met with a Colombian film document, a documentary filmmaker in Brazil, or in Colombia, who basically said that, uh, in Bogota, who suggested this area, he will have everything you're looking for. Sadly, it was only accessible by aircraft, and... Um, once you were on aircraft there, you had to take a boat to actually reach the set. So um, the, loca- the locale presented a lot of problems with that. I mean, how do you ship everything up? And of course, at the end of the day, you have heat, you have storms. And this delayed a lot of stuff. They had to wait on the weather. So, um, you know, essentially, uh, they, with this being based off the Red Brigades, um, you know, and the media being used focused on portraying violence with little regard for the actual journalistic integrity. Um, he believed that the, you know, the media was staging everything, like I said, so he reflected this behavior within his film. And also, hence the title, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, you know, it's it, it essentially just kind of wraps everything up within there. And then he wrote um, the script, the term Green Inferno, and uh, as you can see, that name would later be adapted by the small film within the film. And uh, of course, the screenplay went through some changes, and um, a lot of scenes were dropped. Like they wanted to do some piranha scene, but it just there's a lot of technical issues. So casting, I didn't know this, but due to Italian law, you um, 
the film actually uh, you have to hire two native Italians and he ended up hiring two who spoke English and uh, going forward from there um, he wanted it to be English because it would appeal to a larger audience when it made sense now as I said uh, Robert Kerman aka Arbola from the uh, the famous film Debbie Does Dallas he worked um, with Diodato um, with uh, Umberto Lenzi and uh, his girlfriend I guess uh, had worked on um, sets and had to be between uh, New York City and Rome, so she she knew him, and basically got a few different jobs through her with different Italian films. You'll see him in Cannibal Furox as well. So direction-wise, like I said, um, these are based off some of his favorite documentary filmmakers, um, and uh, you know they use he he uses that in some of Alan's kind of technique, and then just some of his own sort of with the showing of the bizarre customs and whatnot, and uh, essentially he just. He wanted to show people, you know, that it's sort of an, I don't know how to explain it other than an expose of worldly violence. And that kind of wraps this film up pretty nicely. So, um, as I said, uh, director-wise, he filmed it with um, Cinema Verte Tech, which I guess gives it a very, it really gives it a very hyper-realistic um, tension. And uh, the film historians David Krex um, contends that the film's really is, uh, you know, it's, Without having that, it wouldn't. It just wouldn't feel right, you know. Without having the shaky hand ca- camera, it just gives you sort of a self-realization that you're there, and you're you're on a first-person experience of what's going on, and um, you know, it, it it's like I said, it's that documentary style, so it's pretty makes you kind of feel sick to your stomach sometimes, and um, with that, you know, they had to do, of course, the animal cruelty. So, like I was saying with the animal cruelty, I mean, you know, having such realistic film work, I mean, essentially, I can see why the Italian authorities wanted him arrested after seeing this. I mean, we'll get into it, but essentially, they thought this was a snuff film. And um, <clears throat> as I was saying with the animal cruelty, I mean, this is a, this isn't now. I mean, it's not, I mean, People didn't even have human rights at this point. So, um, like, there wasn't really much for animal law. And essentially, like, from a film historian point of view, this really adds to the reality. And I I get that now after seeing it, but it still fucking disgusts me. Because, like, I mean, one of the scenes, like, you see the actors kill this giant sea turtle. um, And, like, I mean, when you're watching it, like, your brain is conditioned to that point to be like all right, this is fucking real. Like, that's a real animal. So for you to see this animal being killed, what's the difference when you see the actual actors being killed? You know, you can't make that that cut. So, um, I mean, there's a few other different animals that are killed in this um, movie altogether, and each one leaves you disgusted. But that sea turtle is pretty particularly nasty. So, um, like I said, the film filming began actually June 4th, uh, 1979. Um, I can only imagine the fucking heat there. Um, and, uh, essentially, you know, it was all done with a handheld 16 millimeter camera. Um, like, you know, you'll see it actually come up when they're using it in a couple of parts. It's, it's kind of funny, <laughs> but, uh, anyways, um, you know, we're kind of back and forth between New York City, Columbia, and of course the Amazon and, with all of that being said, as some of the actors put it, the tensions were were high. I mean, pardon me, filming wasn't, like, 
you know, the most ideal conditions to begin with. So as you can imagine, being out in the heat and then apparently Diodato is not exactly easy to work with either. So um, according to Kerman, Diodato wanted everything from them, uh, you know, and everything and anything and very demanding and just they, you know, couldn't keep up. Now, I guess there's reports of others being paid unfairly, including one guy that said he was paid in pesos, actually to fight to get paid in American dollars like he was originally agreed upon. Um, and of course, um, sadly, the locals were treated unfairly. So Kerman basically put it like, you didn't speak Italian. You know, Diodato wanted nothing to do with you. But those of you that spoke Italian, you weren't exactly safe either because he could just ship you back. Like, he didn't really give a shit. Um, uh, essentially, you know, like, with that being said, the cast, you know, the cast tried to do what they could for him. But Diodato also was making some pretty crazy demands. I mean, he's asking them to kill live animals on set. So a bunch of them did not want anything to do with that. So um, I guess there's some reports like Kerman walked off set um, at the at death of one of the Kudamundi, which is one of the little monkeys. Um, York, uh, the actor, he was, you know, they had to kill the pig. And with that shooting scene, the squealing, he ended up messing up their lines. Um, and it's not like he could exactly reshoot it. They didn't have additional pigs. So, um, you know, uh, Perry uh, Pickenin, he basically cried after the turtle um, was killed, and uh, a couple of crew members were reported to be throwing up after. So, um, that all being said, you know, with the animal cruelty, uh, Faye didn't really content potentially care for the sexual content. So, she didn't want to do the scene. And there's reports that Diodato dragged her off set, screamed at her in Italian, and then she just came back and really didn't say anything. And then she suggested actually having sex with the man on, like, out in the woods, and then New York declined, which then he said she basically ignored him for the rest of filming. She wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, kind of just ridiculous when you put it all together. Like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, people. Get over it. It's acting. You're being paid to do that, but... Well, but at the same time, I mean, she was getting gang raped, so I can see that point. But, yeah, I don't know. Some of it's a little, I think, like, if you get into reading a lot about film um, from the director's standpoint and from the actor's standpoint, you're really going to see a lot of back and forth between who's the asshole. Um, and uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm totally going off here, but Eli Roth brought up a good point. Like, the best um, sort of... Uh, instruction given to him to be a director was being a camp counselor. You know, that doesn't explain it. Nothing will. And you basically have to treat everybody like they are their individual superstar. And I don't know if Diodato really mastered that at that point. <clears throat> Anyways, going forward here, I want to mention about the soundtrack. Um, this is one of the most interesting soundtracks for a film to me. Um, is just really neat. I mean, starting with, of course, the Grindhouse um, introduction. You'll see that in every Grindhouse film. I wish it was a ringtone. Someone help me. I can't seem to find it anywhere as one. I think it'd be so cool. But um, the uh, it, we get into the music, which, of course, was composed by Ritz Ocelani, uh, R.I.P. And, um, you know, it's basically a mixed range of full, full orchestra, electronic, and synthesizers. And, um, of course, uh, you know, he recommended, like, I, I really recommend checking out this main theme. It's probably one of my favorites out of all of it. I'm just going to play a little bit for you guys. It was mentioned the first little part here, but um, I just highly, I just think so much of it.
one of those like it it's so soothing yet at the same time completely unsettling this is a it's a creepy movie and uh you know like the music just doesn't work so reaction of course as i was saying didato was initially arrested and uh, the magistrate held the film they wanted his arrest this was a snuff film and he killed everybody and it didn't actually happen he he wanted you know to kind of create this real life idea that he did so of course he um essentially had everybody fly out and like hide and then he had to fly everybody back to rome to basically prove his innocence you know kind of crazy fucking stuff and to me that's just to me that's crazy like i mean there's no proof other than a film and why would you kill a bunch of people and then put it in theaters but italy oh we got a lot of catholics a lot of religion but um i mean you know with great great art comes great controversy and i i truly agree with that and this this film definitely takes the cake the inner message here is you know who the real beasts are is it is it us the generation or the the ones that are living you know in a more simpler time who the real animal cannibal is and you know it Diodano does a good job of pointing out it's it's definitely the first world it's 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 not the others we just don't you know quite understand it and, and uh you know, it's he, that basically is the whole argument with the controversy between everybody that was involved, um, every country that banned it, um, and essentially, you know, thinking that this was a snuff film. You know, that just they really couldn't get past that. Um, but those that did, essentially, as I said, this film was heavily censored. So, um, I mean, they basically the snuff allegations were disproven. Because at one point they actually end up studying the scene of the girl being impaled on the um, post, and just you know having film experts look at it just to make sure that he actually didn't impale someone. Um, and once they looked at that going forward, um, essentially, I guess the producer representative uh, they each received a four-month suspended sentence, um, being uh, convicted of obscenity and violence. So Diodato fought in the courts for an additional um, three years to get his film unbanned, and um, it, essentially it finally worked, and he, he did essentially get uh, get his cut. But it wasn't, you know, it didn't really get done until 1984. So. It was quite the quite the fight, uh, especially in in you know the United Artists of uh, of Europe, <clears throat> and uh, you know basically he across the world he he fought with censorship issues. So as I said, with the animal cruelty within this film, um, he, basically. Estiadado himself has condemned his past actions, saying, I was stupid to introduce animals. Although six deaths appear on screen, seven animals were killed for the production. Um, and uh, as the scene depicting the monkey's death was shot twice, resulting in the death of two monkeys, uh, both the animals were eaten by the indigenous cast members. So I guess it wasn't completely wasted. Um, who consider the monkey brains a delicacy? Um, but anyways, besides the point, so um, the animals that were killed on screen, um, so... Uh, We've got a, a Cody, which was in the film that's um, Miguel. He's got a muskrat. And we've got a large turtle. That's one of the worst parts. Oh, it literally makes me sick. The tarantula, um, a boa constrictor, um, kind of part of the plot. And, uh, of course, the uh, the squirrel monkeys and um, the pig later shot at point-blank range. <clears throat> 
So, of course, film historians argue that the deaths have been harshly condemned because of the film's classification as exploitation, um, whereas animal mutilations in the film perceive the critics um, basically as classic art films. You know, it, there's a few that, you know, Apocalypse Now, The Rules of the Game, El Topo, these all had animal deaths that people don't, you know, they don't seem to, it, it was, you know, it, it worked. And then people really focused on the one from Diodato. <clears throat> so, I mean, you know, essentially, uh, as the BBFC made a similar conclusion regarding the censorship of scenes in which deaths um, were quick and painless, um, removing the sequence sequences would be inconsistent with the BBF's decision to permit quick, clean deaths in other films. So, essentially, like, some of them were clean and cut, others weren't. So, some of it has been, you know, edited, and others uh, essentially allowed it so it, it kind of you know depending on the scene depending on what exactly happened but it's funny when the cut the the edition that i have actually in the beginning offers you to either watch the animal cruelty free version or the unedited version um and stupid me i always go unedited <clears throat> So, um, this film, I mean, it was an innovative plot structure, um, specifically with the concept of the found footage being brought back to civilization and later viewed. Uh, I mean, like I said, it was a film within a film and it, this distinct Hollywood style of that, you know, found footage is later going to be copied and used again for Blair Witch. Um, and, uh, you know, it's cheap, cheap production and whew, does it hit home? Well, and I guess, you know, the little... My research is a little outdated here, but not only the Blair Witch, but later that would come up with paranormal activity. So, um, basically, uh, both of which were, you know, they end up using this similar storytelling devices. So, um, <clears throat> now, uh, this film is regarded as the apex of the cannibal genre. Um, and you'll see other films that came up at the time, Cannibal Ferox, um, and it, and it, I've seen both, and it just didn't hold the same sort of punch. Like, I felt Cannibal Ferox was kind of like the carnival version. They're just taking everything from Cannibal Holocaust and trying to make it go that much further. But it just it didn't work. It just made it really fake. <clears throat> and now, um, of course, unofficial sequels to Cannibal Holocaust were produced in the years. Um, and they also didn't work. They weren't what people were looking for. And uh, essentially, you know, it just it just kind of didn't really work all together. But 2005, um, Theodato announced that he planned to make um, a companion piece to Cannibal Holocaust entitled Cannibals. And he was originally hesitant about directing a new film, um, which he thought would be too violent for the American audience. However, he was in Prague filming his cameo in Hostel 2 with Eli Roth. And then when he viewed Hostel, he decided he would direct it after all. Um, and uh, it's similarly violent, um, and uh, it's setting is it's similarly violent film, given the mainstream release in America. Now, although the screenplay written by Christine was completed, um, there was a financial conflict, um, so uh, basically it was cancelled. But you know, for all of us that do love cannibals, we do get, of course, Roth's Green Inferno. Um, so of course, you know, he took that title from Cannibal Holocaust. It's a homage to Cannibal Holocaust, um, but uh, filmed a different area. He went to Peru, and um, I'm probably going to revisit that one because it's another one of my favorites. And uh, of course, Eli went through his own um, hardships trying to film this one as well, and uh, it just a truly unique story. <clears throat> But um, it, it's uh, it's kind of neat to see, you know, that nothing has held, you know, been able to, to basically fill its shoes ever since. Green Inferno did a pretty good job, but 
I mean, it's like Eli said, it's a homage. It's it's meant to honor it. And, and that's how I see it. I can't compare the two. So um, the film's uh, influence is extended, of course, to other media. So the death metal band, uh, forgive me for mispronouncing this, Necrophagia released a song entitled, of course, Cannibal Holocaust um, with its uh, Epinus record. And, um, of course, uh, the British author, uh, Sarah Dute, published uh, Cannibal Metropolis, a novel inspired by this, um, but set in an urban location. And essentially, like Cannibal Holocaust, the novelization exp- definitely features explicit scenes of violence, horror, and rape. So um, we have some some alternative versions. So due to the graphic content, there's several different versions that, you know, were floating around, like I said, they all were heavily edited. So in the UK, the film was originally re- released on VHS um, in 1982 with approximately about six minutes of cuts. Um, and uh, these cuts were self-improvised by the distributor. Now, of course, the film in 2001 uh, passed the release for DVD uh, with the five minutes and 44 seconds of cuts uh, to remove scenes of animal cruelty, sexual violence, but all, um, but all, but all but 15 seconds of these were uh, waived for the re-release. Um, and like I said, so, you know, when Grindhouse was re-releasing these videos on Blu-ray DVD, you can watch the animal cruelty version, or of course you can watch the completely unedited one. And um, I guess other versions um, contain alternative footage shot specifically for Middle Eastern markets, so they don't uh, depict any nudity. Um, so there's also um, multiple versions of the Last Road to Hell segment in the film, uh, which causes variances among the uncensored release. So an unextended version of the Last Road to Hell includes approximately 10 min- seconds of footage not seen in an alternative shorter version. And it's pretty disturbing, these little glimpses into it. I don't exactly know what they were filming. I don't know if it's something going on in Africa, what exactly it is, but I mean, it's, it's just gratuitous, awful death and ugh, it's unsettling. Um, but uh, basically guys, in summary, if you have not seen Cannibal Holocaust and you like cannibals, it, it, something's wrong. Go check this film out. It is in fucking sane. Um, and it, to me, it's, just before it's time um i mean it definitely i don't even think if it was to come out now if people would could view it any differently it's it's just so grotesque and so horrible but at the same time i mean it's it's just i don't know real life if if that makes any sense it's just humans it's it's so much I, i i honestly I don't even really know how to summarize it. Because at the end of the day, I mean, at the beginning, you really think these cannibals are just awful. They're horrible things. But at the same time, this is just their way of life. I mean, at the same time, they also have a kind of a a beautiful, naturalistic view. um, And you don't really see that until Monroe comes in and really kind of opens your eyes to that. And... It's something Yates didn't see, and even our producers who later want to put this film out, you know, or I should say the TV show, like, who are the real villains here? And and that's where you leave the film thinking that. And I guess that's where, truly where I feel the art is in this movie, as awful as it is, like, it's to leave with such a powerful message, you've, you've done something right. So, um... 
No, uh, there's an excellent essay uh, that I used a little bit with my research here, and I highly recommend checking out just basically Eli Ross' um, experience when he watched the film for the first time. Really fascinating stuff, um, and I highly, highly recommend it. Of course, guys, thank you for listening. Um, it's got to be a record 36 minutes of me blabbering on about cannibals. Um, listen to me, I'm starting to go hoarse. Uh, like, thank you. Like, so cool you guys actually put up with me. Of course, for all my horror-loving geeks out there, you guys have got to get to a Stranger Dream on Etsy or on Instagram. Um, well, you can and use CreeperCast10 to square yourself 10% off some of her... Uh, adorable, wicked, amazing stuff. Uh, I honestly just got a huge package of bookmarks the other day and guys, like Cujo, he's so cool. Um, and not to mention my scream knife, um, you know, just, just a couple of my favorites. And of course, Hannibal, uh, I'm just in love with him. It's just, it's so cool. Um, and, uh, of course guys, like I said, thank you for listening. Reach out to me. You can reach, reach me at, uh, meet, find me on Instagram, on Twitter. And, uh, of course guys, keep Keep calm, stay creepy. Till next time.